I don't know if you've seen the newest Apple commercial. Have you seen that? It's really funny. <laughs> um, Apple, I'm not trying to buzz market Apple, but everyone has an iPhone in the world, so, you know, what more promotion, what could promotion do to help them, really? Uh, but the newest Apple commercial I was watching with Jackie, and it really surprised me, because I don't often, I often criticize the lack of imagination commercials, and I think I could do better. Um, it's a pr part of my pride, I guess. I wanted to go into advertising at one point in my life, like, a, like an ad man, but not a madman, because that's, that's just gross. Um, I thought it'd be fun to go into advertising, so I'm always saying to Jackie, oh, they should have done this differently. They should have done this. This is not funny. What a waste of time this commercial is, right? Maybe some of you are as critical as I am. Uh, but in the new Apple, newest Apple commercial, I was so surprised by it, I laughed an ugly laugh of continually. <laughs> um, so in this commercial, uh, a mother is showing the photos she has just taken with her iPhone to her friend. Uh, and the newest iPhones have a feature where you can do an effect where the, the foreground is, is sharp, the object that you're photographing, and the background is blurred. It's called the bokeh effect. And it was previously reserved only for people with very expensive cameras and expensive equipment. But uh, you can now do it with these iPhones. You can take these pictures where the front is, is bold and the background is blurred. And in the commercial, mom one says to mom two, who is that blurred out in the background of, of that picture of your kid? And mom, mom number one says, uh, did you bokeh my child? Did you blur my child in the background? And mom two says, oh, no, that was totally unintentional. I didn't mean to blur your child in the background of my picture. And then the mom number two says, why do you hate Jacob so much? <laughs> and the other mom says, no, 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 it was a mistake. See, you can bokeh and you can unbokeh the picture. And she, she kind of turns the effect off and the, and the background of Jacob comes in, into focus. And uh, the other mom says, what kind of a person bokeh's a child? I would never bokeh your child. So in this commercial, Apple has effectively made the term bokeh into a, a verb. You can bokeh things. And I think that's pretty funny. So since I've seen this commercial, it's kind of been my great delight to bokeh things <laughs> and keep what's important front and center. <laughs> Kids are in Sunday school. That's not true. But you can also, you can unbokeh them. See, look at that. Huh? Huh. Uh, it's a cool effect. No, I don't hate my children. I love them all. So this is the low-hanging fruit that you would expect as, as an example from a minister of the gospel. Low-hanging fruit in a sermon introduction like this. Whether you are a Christian, a person evaluating Christianity for possibly becoming a Christian, or you're an un unbeliever who does not care at the moment, the danger for everybody is the same that we would bring ourselves into focus, and we would blur God out of our lives completely. This is what people do. Christians and non-Christians uh, end up having God become a less and less important part of their life to the point where he is indistinguishable in the background. And this is something God's people have always uh, struggled with, keeping him front and center. And the fundamental question is, do we trust in God? That's the question that we're constantly being asked of the scriptures. Is your hope in chariots, the, ch the chariots and, and the weapons of war of a great country? Or is your hope in God? And the stories in the Old Testament about uh, trusting in God or trusting in chariots are almost comical. So many stories. Think about 
Joshua in the Battle of Jericho. You know, this, these were walls that were impenetrable into a fortress. And uh, God says, I want you to trust in me, not in your military strength. So this is what you do. Just walk around the walls for several days. And then I will make them fall down. And that's what God did. Uh, in the story of, of Gideon, the instruction was, take all of your, all your fighting men, and then God, through a series of different steps, eliminated the strongest and best fighters from the army until only a few fearful people were left over. And then God said to smash some, um, some pots on the ground, and God threw the enemy into confusion, and the battle was won. Over and over again in the Bible, uh, people are given this option of trusting in God or trusting in other people, and letting God fade into the background. And whenever God fades into the background of, of a nation of, of people, um, the, the nation or person is saying, in essence, I don't trust you. And the question of the Bible is, do you trust God? One of the sections we read in Mission 119 this past week is Isaiah uh, 27 through 33. And in this passage, uh, God's people are up to the unthinkable. Let's get rid of it. Um, they are complicating their lives severely and about to fall under severe consequences for doing that. Um, but to them and, and to us, God's question rings strong. Do you trust me? Or do you trust in your own strength or someone else for your salvation? Here's the context of today's reading. God's people used to be in slavery uh, in Egypt. God had hidden his people in Egypt and uh, through, through that long uh, train of events that led to that time when, uh, when Joseph rose up as a ruler in Egypt and then invited his family to live in Egypt when there was a famine in the land. And through that providential work of God, bringing God's people into Egypt, uh, God's people were blessed. They began to grow grow and grow and grow, like exponentially. Tons and tons of people, uh, of God's people, filled Egypt, and they were able to grow and prosper because they were in a land that was, that was rich, that was full, that was near the Nile River. There was great life. But what happens when an outside nation comes into another nation and then starts to grow in population? What's the way of the world? Well, the new king, the new pharaoh of Egypt, decided this was not such a good thing. And in order to keep... God's people, the Israel, from overthrowing Egypt, the, the Pharaoh was going to put them into slavery, as we talked about, uh, as was talked about earlier. It says in Exodus 1, 8 to 14, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So the Egyptians put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar, with all kinds of works in the field. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So, in God's providence, these people ended up in Egypt. 
because of the fear of, of the Egyptians about the growing numbers of Israelites, they put them into slavery. But the problem was they just kept growing. They just kept growing and growing and growing. It became a serious problem. And so they started working them harder and harder and harder. But eventually, after 400 years in captivity, God hears the cries of his people who are enslaved in Egypt. And they cry out to God for deliverance. They have no options except really God. And we get this famous Exodus story, which is central to the thinking of Jewish people and thus to the thinking of Christian people as well who, who come out of the race of the Jews, who are grafted in. This is the central narrative for all of us, this idea of, uh, of Exodus. So after God hears people cry, God acts to deliver them, and, uh, he, ra- and he raises up Moses to come before Pharaoh and to say, let God's people go. It's time to let them go. And Pharaoh refuses time and time again. And Moses multiplies signs to show Pharaoh that God's means business. Pharaoh continues to resist. Finally, the final consequence for Pharaoh of resisting God is God takes the firstborn of all the cattle, all the people in Egypt. And finally, Pharaoh relents and lets the people go. It was a great salvation. These people that had been ruthlessly oppressed for hundreds of years God rose up this meek man, Moses, and God did signs before Pharaoh that, that were so compelling that finally Pharaoh let them go. But even then, Pharaoh's heart was still hard, and he ended up chasing after them. This, and there's the amazing story of the Red Sea um, drying up and spreading, and, and the Israelites walking across on dry ground to safety while the Egyptian horses and riders were swallowed up in the ocean. This great story a central narrative, salvation from our captors, right? And this is, the, this is really the central narrative for us Christians as well. You know, in Egypt, God provided a salvation that could not have been possible through human effort whatsoever. There is no human being that can make the waters of the sea dry up so people can walk across. And in fact, I've thought about this. Think of how muddy it would have been. Like, even if there was like, ooh, this crazy weather phenomenon that made the sea do this, it would still be so muddy, people would sink down into it. But there's no human that could have done that. It was was God's work alone, just like Joshua in the Battle of Jericho, just like in the story of Gideon and so many other stories. Something happened when God's people cried out to him and said, you are our plan A, God. We don't have a plan B. We trust in you. We don't trust in other nations or the things other nations find important. We trust in you. And when God is trusted in that way, he, he, moves, he moves stuff. Let's just put it that way. So, you know, God provided this great uh, found, uh, salvation and exodus in Egypt. And if you read the book of Exodus side by side with the book of Matthew, you will see that the writer of Matthew is talking about Jesus. is constantly making reference to the exodus of Egypt. And the message of the gospel of Matthew is there is, a, there is an ultimate and new exodus through Jesus Christ. God has done something that no human can do. God has dried up the ground and made a way for people who are not holy to come into relationship with the holy God by his shed blood on the cross. It's a new exodus, and Jesus is leading the way along with John the Baptist and the apostles and the church, uh, which has been giving faithful testimony to this throughout the ages, and saying there is no other name under heaven by which men and women can be saved but Jesus Christ. God showed his outstretched arm through Jesus, the Messiah, the cornerstone. And he's, for anyone who looks to him, he does what only God can do. What no human effort could ever produce, he makes a way for us to be in relationship with God 
And it's so, uh, so thorough a work that God did in Christ for those of us who have faith that nothing can separate us from his love once we get into that place. And this was always God's plan to provide this ultimate exodus to which the original exodus of Moses only was a shadow. Not to just save a select group of people from human slavery in Egypt, but to ultimately provide an exodus from sin and death through Jesus Christ for all who believe in him. Um, it's an amazing salvation. 1 John 4, 9-10 says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent us his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So the, the promise there is for all people who place their faith in Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross, there is no condemnation left for sin. There is no, there's no mud and there is no water that's impassable. There's dry ground, a relationship with God. We are saved when we believe, believe and trust in Jesus from the ultimate consequences of our sin and our rebellion, from hell to heaven, from a life without meaning to a life in the kingdom of God, imbued with meaning where we live every day for him and in his, in his peace. A present and future salvation. And the question, one of the questions we could ask, just seeing, seeing the exodus, seeing what God's done for us in Christ is, each of us has to look at ourselves and say, do I believe this? Am I one of the people that has received the salvation that God has provided through Jesus? Or have I said, no, I don't trust in you, I trust in other things. I'm a, I'm a relatively good person. I'm sure that God would never judge me for my sin. <laughs> we have to ask that question because the question is not whether or not you're a good person. You very well might be a wonderful person. The question is about holiness. God is holy. He is pure light. In him there is no darkness at all or shadow of darkness. There's no way for us to earn our way to God. In fact, our good deeds, the very best that we do, even though that's good stuff that God would be happy with many times, it's, when you hold it up to God's holiness, it looks like filthy rags, the Bible says. We have to go through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Uh, there's no other way for that right relationship with God. So the question is, you know, do you believe this? This is something you've staked your life on. Do you trust in God? You know, today is the day, the Bible says, to make up your mind. Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. No one knows how long we have to seek God, how long our lives are going to be, when, when, when Christ will come back. But God has offered this way for us to come on dry ground into relationship with him through the shed blood of Jesus. So our God has not changed from the time of the Exodus to the present day. The God of the Exodus that dried up that ground and set God's people free is the same God that provided Jesus Christ, came himself in the flesh to set us free. The same God doing something that none of us could do in our human effort. So as I said in today's reading in Isaiah, the unthinkable has happened, given all that context. The unthinkable. God's people are in great fear, and they have been for a long time. And they decided, after a series of other um, allegiances that turned out to be very faulty, they decided finally that under threat of being attacked by Syria, they were going to send some envoys to Egypt. God's people who had been delivered from Egypt, they said, we're going to send all of our best goods and stuff to Egypt, and we're going to ask Egypt to help us against our enemy. Which is like, a very bad idea. Because God said, when I set you free from this place, you're not supposed to go back to this place. 
No one feels like we're prone to this, right? (laughs) So you want to go back to Egypt. Think about it. They sent a whole crowd of people with goods and possessions back to Egypt. Um, The way that God had delivered his people out of bondage and slavery through the desert, all the familiar landmarks. I was imagining with my friend Jason Harmon, he was telling me today, imagine this, all the the stones of remembrance that the, the Israelites had set up along the way as God was delivering them out of Egypt, they had to now backtrack, and they're walking past these things thinking, we're going back to trust in the people that enslaved us. This is a crazy and ironic thing. And the prophet is shocked. Isaiah is shocked. He's expressing God's dismay. In fear, people have said, we don't trust in God to protect us from our enemies. We're actually going to trust in the people we used to be enslaved to. Um, So this is the context of of our passage today. Isaiah 31 to 3. This is God speaking to his people about their alliance with Egypt. He says, Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. But Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. For the Israelites... And for us, for Judah and for us as modern followers of Christ. The way of faith has always been as simple as choosing to trust in God or choosing to trust in other things. This is completely applicable to us. And whenever God's people, whether then or now, choose to trust in other things and they bring God out of focus and they just live uh, with their own ideas, their own plans in the foreground, the consequences both in the now in their lives, and in the future are, are huge, huge consequences. So here's how the people react to God's word to them through Isaiah about um, how they have formed this alliance with Egypt. And you need to listen to this. I never thought about it this way, uh, but think, listen to how cynical uh, the, their reaction is to Isaiah's simple word to them. The people say, who's Isaiah trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from milk? To those just taken from the breast? For it's, do this, do that, a little rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there. This is the sound of children. This is the sound of us. When anyone, especially God, says, this is not a good path, you shouldn't go in it. When someone says, this is the wrong way, turn from it. When an authority speaks to us, We become little children, and these people became little children. Who is he, who is God, to tell us what to do? We know what we're doing. He's always throwing little rules on us. Do this, don't do that. God's just a big rule person. He's just sitting around, holding a clipboard, checking off if we're obeying the rules. That's who God is. And we're we're, we're sick of it, they said. Then God speaks to this attitude. And uh, in verse 11, you pick up his voice begins. And God says, very well then. With foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people, to whom he said, this is the resting place, let the weary rest, and this is the place of repose. But they would not listen. So then the word of the Lord to them will become, do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there, so that as they go, they will fall backward. They will be injured and snared and captured. It's funny, you know, 
God says, well, it wasn't going to be this way, but now it is. I was offering you myself. Trust in me. Don't trust in this nation you used to be enslaved by that I freed you from. Trust in me. And you said, who are you to talk to us about our lives, God? What authority do you have? You're always just dumping rules on us. So God says, fine, fine. I will release you to your decision and, and I will be reduced to just a list of do's and don'ts for you because that's what you want. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast, we have entered into a covenant with death. With the realm of the dead, we have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us, for we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place, speaking of their relationship to Egypt. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie, and water will overthrow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the realm of the dead will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it comes, it will carry you away. Morning after morning, by day and by night, it will sweep through. What is God saying to his people? Fine, have your way. And this is something that God still speaks today to us. Fine, have your way. I will no longer guide you, but will allow you to experience the consequence of this dire path that you've been warned of. Because my word to you seemed too simplistic and too naive, and you didn't think it was worth listening to, fine, go ahead. The amazing thing, though, as you see, is that though he is releasing them to the consequences of their decisions, he's holding out hope for them, saying, you're going to go through this, and by the time you're done feeling those consequences, just know this, I have a cornerstone prepared for you. There's always hope. God, suffering and even the consequences we have over our own choices, God is always working to redeem those things. But imagine the horror of Isaiah and, his, and God um, as they have started to look back to Egypt. The people that God delivered them from and said, you know what? We're going to trust in them. I love how John Soper summarized um, the teaching in this, in this week's reading from Mission 119. It says, The people reacted violently against the perceived flaws of God's simplistic advice simply to trust in him instead of other nations. They, in essence, said, We're big people. We are quite capable of deciding what is good for us. We don't want you to impose your rules on us anymore. And besides, the world we live in is far more complicated than you prophets seem to understand. It's not a world in which a simple solution like just trust God will work out. That doesn't apply anymore. That might have worked for Abraham and Noah, but everything is different now. So as when he deals with us, when we choose not to trust him, as he releases us to our consequences, these people entered into this dangerous situation with Egypt where they, they're going to most certainly enter captivity again by Syria. For Egypt was not even strong enough to help them in the end of the day. That's the sad part. Egypt was a weak nation at the time, not strong enough to fight against the enemy, but it was their only option in their wisdom, even though God said, trust in me. But as I said, God tucked away this precious promise for us in Isaiah 28, 16, um, which is almost universally by all theologians thought to point to Jesus Christ. He says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. 
after I've released you to all of these consequences, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. And ladies and gentlemen, that cornerstone is Jesus Christ, the one that God uh, planned to send before the foundation of the world, the one through whom the world was created. God is setting a cornerstone in Jesus Christ for anyone who will decide to put their trust in God. Jesus the Messiah. The cornerstone of a building is what determines if a building is um, built up strong, tall, and stable. Without a cornerstone carefully laid, the building's integrity is in question. You can build it high up into the heavens and at a certain weight and a certain wind velocity, the, the thing's going to come crashing down. And it says in that passage, the one who relies on Jesus will never be stricken with panic. Think of the panic of other nations closing in on Israel, stronger nations. Assyria, Syria. God says, do not fear, for I am with you. I've laid a cornerstone. God offered to his people then what he offers now. Now our world is no more, really, as much as things have changed, not, not so much has changed. We still have the choice to trust in God or not. And God offers to us, trust in me and my salvation, which I have provided for you in Christ. Trust in other things or people is futile. You will ultimately lead to your destruction. Choose you this day whom you will serve. I don't know the attitudes that you feel in your own life that you hold in your heart. Um, truly, only you know if you trust in God in your life, for your salvation, for your meaning, for your peace in your life. But lots of people in this generation trust in their own goodness to save them. They do. They think that they're good enough that when God looks at their life, he'll say, no, you've done a lot of really good deeds. A lot of people are much worse than you. You're in. Like basically, you know, here's, here's the most evil person you can imagine. We're way far from that. We're good. But again, this is about holiness, not about, not about goodness. People are great. People that don't believe in Jesus do wonderful things. I would never look down on the works of people that don't know Jesus and say, that's not good work. That's not. We're not talking about goodness. We're talking about holiness. And God is a holy God. And he has said, trust in Jesus Christ, the perfect one, who is me, who's come in the flesh to shed his blood for the remission, for the taking away of your sins. And you will be saved. And then you can continue doing the works of the kingdom. Keep doing those great works you're doing in Christ. Keep on following. Keep on serving me as Lord. But ultimately, many people in this generation think that their goodness is good enough to get them to God. Many people in this room do. But know that there is one way uh, to be truly saved, and that's through Jesus Christ. That's holiness. And when you line up with the holiness of God by putting your faith in Jesus's, what Jesus did on your behalf rather than looking to your own goodness, then you are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And at that point, uh, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God uh, that's in Christ because Christ's sacrifice was a perfect fit for our brokenness. Whatever we throw at God, he can cover it through Jesus, but we have to trust in him. People think that's too simplistic. They do. But I'm telling you, every good fruit and every good work flows from that initial decision to follow God. It's not simplistic. It's complicated. Your sin is complicated. It has separated you from God. It's complicated. There's nothing you could do about it. It's complicated. You can't dry up the Red Sea with a, with a monsoon and create dry ground for yourself to walk through it. You need God. 
You need God himself to pay the price through himself for our, your breaking of his law. And he did that for you, provided that way, because he loves you. We love not because, not because we love God, but because he first loved us and sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for your sin. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. That's the truth of the scripture. And this is the way to holiness. This is the way to connect to God. People go from sinner to saint instantaneously when they trust in Jesus Christ because you are given the holiness of God. Now, your life still needs to like, change and there's the whole process of sanctification of coming into line with God and his best. But when it comes to salvation, it's holiness, baby. And there's only one place to get holiness. Jesus. That's it. Holiness is found in no one else, no place else. People do hem and haw at that. It seems too simple. It seems, too, it seems to lack complexity. But this is the way. Faith in Jesus Christ.